Hey guys, welcome to episode 131 of the True Crime Couple podcast. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we hope you're all doing well. This is a very exciting episode because it's the first one of my summer vacation. I know you're really happy about that. Yes, Summer K has been activated. So that's a bad and good thing. Kay flipped the switch. (laughs) (laughs) And my mom is here for a visit. So we've been catching her up on all the true crime documentaries. You guys have been having a blast. Yeah, I showed her the Chris Watts documentary and I think she's still traumatized from it. I think so. It's a pretty sad one. Okay, so before we get into the case we have for you today, I just want to do some housekeeping, so please bear with us. We are asking of you to help us out in any way you can. Some of the best things you can do for us would be to leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening to us on and to tell a friend. For those of you that have done that already, we thank you so much. Your reviews are heartwarming and we love to read them. We still read them as we're like having lunch or dinner and we always enjoy what you guys have to say and some of it's so sweet it really really is is. always great oh Oh, jinx Jinx. (laughs) it really helps get the word out about the podcast it's so hard because we are still like this little fish swimming in a big pond a pond of murder and mayhem and true crime (laughs) so it's really helpful if you spread the word about us because it's really the best way to get out there true word of mouth Other things you can do would be to check out the sponsors of our shows. And if you want more True Crime Couple, we release two full-length bonus episodes a month on our Patreon site or app, whichever you prefer. And if you're a $10 and up subscriber, you get a fifth kind of John-centric episode, um, which I love because I get to be a guest on, and John kind of takes the reins on that one. I do enjoy it. And you can join our Patreon by using the Patreon app or going to patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. And there's another reason why this episode is so very, very important. Because July 3rd, 2017 was our first release. So it's our fifth anniversary. It's actually crazy to think that we've been doing this for five years. Yes, it's it, been wonderful. It's nuts. And the first time we like released the Hinter KFAC episode, which I'm still very proud of. I mean, that I really did months of research on that episode. Oh, it was fantastic. I'm like, the first one has to be a heavy hitter. It has to be really good. The only problem, though, it took us like two hours to like figure out how to actually put it on the Internet. Oh, my God. We had no clue what we were doing. We're, we were like, like, is this going yeah. up? <laughs> it took us forever. And then we went to... Uh, like a local bar and we were having dinner and we were like oh my god five people have listened six people have listened and we were so excited i remember also when we got our like first patreon and it was like you know i think like a dollar and we were like yeah we got a dollar (laughs) we got a dollar we've got our first dollar so it was really exciting and i even remember getting our first ads like when so we release on audio boom and when the audio boom people called us and were like oh, we we're looking to maybe start some ad space with you guys. And I was in denial. I thought it was a joke. Yeah, so did I. I thought that that would not even be a thing that we were going to be able to ever, ever do. Ever be able to do. Yeah. I was like, wouldn't it be cool if we did this for like a year? Yeah. And now look, it's so amazing. I love our true crime couple family. It really is great. And honestly, we wouldn't be able to do any of this or be here where we are without all you guys listening to us. So yes. And I we, have to thank you for that. We appreciate everything you guys do for us. And it's so wonderful always talking to you guys, whether it's on social media, on like any way, whether it's on Twitter or Instagram. And, 
you know, we just really appreciate you sticking with us for five years through our horrific audio, our terrible upstairs neighbors <laughs> who would vacuum and play music. So, so we we love that you came for the ride with us and we appreciate it's it. It's definitely been a ride. <laughs> yes. Okay. So without any further ado, are you ready to get into the case? Always. Today, we are traveling back in time to the summer of 1999, which I hate even saying out loud was 23 years ago. It's insanity. It is. I still think like 23 years ago should be like 1986. But here we are. And here I am needing eye cream and wondering how many eggs I have left. I mean, seriously, I think about 1999. I think like I'm watching cartoons and playing with Pokemon cards. Well, you actually still do those things. Okay, I collect. Very different. (laughs) I'm gonna get. I you know I'm gonna get crap for that now. Thanks, Kay. You're just sorry. airing out my laundry to everyone. That's no, cool. everyone always supports you wholeheartedly. Everyone will be like, "Leave John alone. He's fine." I'm just doing my thing. You know, yeah. I'm quiet. I'm I'm good. We appreciate you. Well, I appreciate all of you. <laughs> okay, so back on track. It's the summer of 1999 in McMinnville, Tennessee, and this is located in the heart of the Bible Belt of the United States. McMinnville prides itself on being an old Baptist southern town. It was actually earlier in 1999 that McMinnville even got its liquor license. So in many states in America, particularly religious ones, there are restricted alcohol locations. So, and this is for our outside U.S. listeners too, so bear with me if you already know this information. In some states, the counties are designated as dry, wet, or moist. In a dry county, there is no sale of alcohol anywhere. In a wet county, it's like the day after Prohibition that alcohol is flowing. And in a moist county, some towns have their liquor license and some towns don't. So where McMinnville is in Warren County, Tennessee, that's a moist county. And in 1999, McMinnville had just gotten permission from the state to sell alcohol. And actually, recently in 2019, Warren County officially became a wet county. So there you go. It's good to know. Yes. And as you can imagine, that July, people were excited because it would be easy for them to get a nice cold beer in the scorching July heat that the landlocked state of Tennessee usually feels in the summertime. So the old timers were still talking about how bringing alcohol into the community would directly invite the devil in. But what they didn't know was that the devil was already in their midst. The carefree tranquility of the southern summer would be brought to an abrupt halt when a crime so heinous occurred that it would change the community forever. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another. Are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. In the early morning hours of July 30th, the residents of Meyer Lane woke up to their neighbor's house on fire. They quickly called 911 and alerted the fire department of what was happening. Many calls came in to the Warren County dispatch at once. There was a fire at Diane Watts' home, and it appeared as if it had been going on for a while, and her car was in the driveway. The fire department responded quickly to the call, and they were able to put the small fire out. The fire itself had been localized to one room, and really only did damage to that bedroom. 
Because the house was old and was built sturdy, it had really put most of the fire out itself, which was good for the structural integrity of the home. Once the fire was put out, the firefighters entered the home to see if anyone was there and needed help. The neighbors had told them that a woman named Diane Watts lived in the home with her 10-year-old daughter, Jessica. Their car was there, so that meant that they were home. Firefighters entered the smoky house to see if the neighbors were correct. And unfortunately, they were. In the bedroom where the fire had originated, they found the body of an adult woman. She had been badly burned from the fire and appeared to have also been bleeding. The firefighter who entered the house had just graduated from the academy, and this was the first fire that he had responded to. He knew his job was to remove the body from the smoky home to see if there were any possible signs of life. He did so. The body of the 42-year-old woman was placed on a small grassy hill located in front of her home. The man then went back into the home. In the other bedroom, he found the body of two young girls. There was a lot of blood, and he was confused. Would this happen because of a fire? He didn't know yet. But their bodies were not burnt. There was still a possibility that they could have been incapacitated because of the smoke inhalation. So he picked up their bodies and brought them outside. When he got to the grassy hill, he saw a tarp now covering the body of the first woman. That meant she didn't make it. Something he knew had been the case, but maybe he thought. Just maybe there was a chance for these girls. The two girls he had brought out were 10-year-old Jessica Watts and 13-year-old Chelsea Smith. Once the girls were laid down, they were checked by the EMTs. No signs of life were found. They had passed away. But what they knew was that these girls had not just died in a fire. After the girls were brought out, the firefighter also saw now that the smoke had cleared a little, that there was blood spatter all over the kitchen floor. As this was all happening, the residents of the nearby homes were watching on in horror behind a police barricade that had been set up immediately when the crowd gathered. The police on the scene were immediately notified of the details of the crime scene, and detectives arrived at Myers Lane residence shortly after the EMTs did at approximately 7.30 a.m. When they got there, the three bodies were covered by tarps to preserve both evidence and their dignity, as the onlookers were still there. McMinnville, although it did have a relatively decent population of 13,000 at the time, was still only a 10-square-mile town, and residents didn't really leave. Generations and generations of families had grown up there. So, as it's often said about towns like these, everyone knew everyone. And because of this, word spread pretty quickly that something horrible had happened at the home of Diane Watts. Diane's sister, Vicki Fleming, heard the news of the fire pretty quickly. She arrived at the scene about 20 minutes after the detectives had, and she was stopped at the police barricade as the other onlookers were there. She pleaded with the officers that this was her sister's house, and she needed to know if she was okay. After a few minutes, a detective came down to greet her and asked her if she would be able to identify the bodies for them. Vicki was in shock and agreed that she could, but she was still unable to process much of what had happened or had been said to her. After the detective asked if she could potentially ID the body of her sister and niece, that meant they were dead. 
that's kind of how she was notified. I mean, that's pretty crazy. I mean, up up to this point, I mean, this whole thing is actually a massive red flag. So I'll point out a couple things here. Question flag or red flag? No, this is red flag. Okay. Guys, Uh, you don't know this, but on the Patreon episode, we created a new flag for John. Because he was just throwing red flags everywhere. And I'm like, no, John, I think these are question flags. (laughs) So, yeah. So we have question flag (laughs) and then there's red flag. So, yeah, I think this is a massive red flag because – a couple of things that you said that really uh, really struck a chord with me was if it's an older house, it's probably made out of oak or there's elements of oak present in the house. And oak is very sturdy and very dense. So if there's a fire on oak wood, it's it it won't burn as fast as other wood, <laughs> you know, other as, wood, wood, other wood, wood, um, <laughs> especially like nowadays, the wood that we use now, even though they're like pressure treated and heat treated and. All that other kind of treated, they go up like tinder sticks. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, but another thing, too, is you have – all these victims have blood on them. Yes. So, obviously, this is foul play. And I actually think that – I mean, I'm sure we'll find out. But I guarantee you there was an accelerant used in that room. There's no way that you're going to have a fire like that with the amount of smoke that's there in one room only. Right. And she's burned very badly. She is. And the girls yeah. are burned just on one side of each of their faces. You know what? It, I get this weird feeling that like in my if I close my eyes, I picture them sleeping, someone coming in, literally pouring gas on them, lighting it up. But then what would account for the blood? I mean, I'm think well, that's actually true too, but I would say that Obviously, something took place beforehand. Right. They they were maybe assaulted. They they were knocked out cold. I don't know. And then they were lit lit on fire. Yeah. Maybe they, they awoke. That's why they were only burned on one side. They wake up. They start running. The smoke, you know, for the kids, maybe the smoke is just in their lungs. They pass out. Right. And they pass away. But it definitely, something's wrong here. Yeah. And I think that accelerant absolutely is, was used here. Yeah. And in all the articles that I read about this case, they kind of eerily describe the fire situation because the firefighters did say that, yes, the fire would be contained because of the way the house was built. But what was eerie and a little different was that the fire wouldn't have just stopped the way that it did. So like the newspapers kind of alluded to the fact that like the, the spirits of the, the three victims stopped the fire to help catch their killer. Oh, geez. I mean... Just saying that's yeah. the way it was written. So it was I do very find it odd, though. Cool. It was um, interesting that the fire stopped the way that it did. But I'm sure there's logical reasons. I didn't get to read the full report from the fire marshal, only what he testified to during trial. Yeah, I mean, trial. listen, you have, there's a multitude of ways for something to catch fire. I mean, you could have an electrical shortage. There was maybe a short in a socket even, and something can go up. Well, they're able to determine yeah. exactly what did. I'm just curious. Well, I mean, I'm sure we'll get to that, but I'm curious. But I'm going to put a red flag in this because this whole situation doesn't make sense to only be carrying out in one room of that of the house. I'm, right. So you're saying the fire. Something's just weird. Yeah. Definitely red flagish. Totally is. So now back to Vicki Fleming identifying the body of her sister and her niece. So like I said, she was really confused because she had really just been told your sister's dead and we need you to id her body and she thought she was just going to see if her sister's house was okay so this was pretty traumatic she was led to the haunting site of the three tarps on the beautiful green grass beneath the shapes of bodies could be made out one adult and two children 
based on interviews that I've seen with Vicki Fleming, I don't think, even though over 20 years have passed, that she's ever recovered from what she saw when the tarp was lifted. She saw her sister bloodied and beaten, and parts of her body, including the whole entire side of her head, was burnt beyond any recognition. That's, I mean, come on. I don't think anybody, if they remove, when they remove the tarp, I don't think anybody could ever forget that. I mean, they're, they're burnt, they're bloodied, they're beat up. Plus, it's a family member. I completely agree. And I think that um, just the fact that she wasn't even, when she arrived at the scene, she didn't even think in her head that, oh, my sister could be dead. And then they didn't really even gently break it to her that her sister and her niece are dead. No, they didn't. And then they're like, here, ID this body. And they know how horrific what had happened to these, this woman and these children was. And they were just kind of like, here, look. And I feel like that was incredibly I mean, I think that has something horrible. To, yeah, I think that has something to do, though, with the, like, when you're a first responder, whether you're a firefighter, a police officer, you know, medic, whatever, a little You're used to numb. It. You're numb to that. You're desensitized to that kind of stuff. So maybe that's just something that they didn't even think about. Yeah. But another thing too, I mean, look, they can do dental records. They can they could even have that person or people in this case in the morgue and do it there. Yeah. Where it's a little bit a little bit of time has been passed so they can actually like explain it. You know? So I don't know. Yeah, I think that this is a little abrupt. It is a little abrupt, and I, I don't want to say anything terrible because based on the rest of this case, the McMinnville Police Department and the Warren County Sheriff's Department did a phenomenal job with this investigation. Um, but what I think this this happened because it was just a lack of practice. In the past decade, there hadn't been any major crime take place, not just in McMinnville, but in the county. So I think they just... They were so shocked that this happened that they wanted this acceleration of, okay, let's let's figure out what took place here. Can you ID her? They just haven't dealt with it enough to realize, okay, this might be a little traumatic for the family. I agree. You know? So after Diane's sister was taken away from the scene, the detectives and the crime scene investigators began investigating the scene. Besides the doors that had been broken down by the firefighters trying to get to the victims, There was no damage to the house other than the one bedroom that had been ravaged by the fire. Like the mattress was burned down to the coils and the wall behind the bed was completely burned. There was blood all over the kitchen floor and next to the blood, um, kind of by the front door, almost as if the assailant or assailants um, just dropped their weapons as they were leaving the front door of the house, um, they found a baseball bat with blood on it. And next to the baseball bat was a large torque wrench that also had blood on it. And based on the blood at the scene and on the bat and the wrench, which were later tested, it was proven that the blood on the baseball bat belonged to Diane Watts and the blood on the torque wrench belonged to the children. That's interesting. So, you know, um, it's funny that you bring up the uh, the bed, right? Because that it was burned down to the coils. Yes. Which I th- and, the be- and the wall behind the bed. And that's where Diane Watts was found on yeah. the bed. That's why I'm thinking, and it makes what I'm thinking more credible, that the fire was definitely started in her bed, I think. Right. 
Um, also, I think it's interesting that you have two separate murder weapons with two separate sets of blood on them, which right. would maybe indicate that it might have been more than one person. One per- And then maybe the person that used the bat killed Diane and the person that had the torque wrench killed the girls. That's right. Yeah. And the fire was most likely started, as most fires do, um, are started at a crime scene, is to cover evidence. Exactly. So the killer or killers, the detectives theorized, must have committed these murders because of the blood at the scene. Because when a fire happens in a house, it doesn't produce blood like that. So obviously, Diane and the two girls had been beaten with these weapons and then a fire was started and luckily for the investigators their plan didn't work because the fire kind of was stopped yeah i mean i'm thinking that they whoever did this thought that the whole house would burn down i think and it would be harder to gather evidence but but the fact that it didn't did not work in their favor here right no that's what they i think thought was gonna take place yeah So later, the fire department was able to determine that the fire was deliberately set with an ignitable liquid fluid, um, like gasoline, based on the burn patterns and the presence of accelerant in the bedrooms, in the hallway, on the bed of Diane, and on the clothes of the two young girls. So basically, they'd put a lot of accelerant on Diane Watts, and then there was a trail of accelerant that went from Diane's body to the bodies of the two girls. Yeah. That's what I've been thinking. It's probably like lighter fluid, probably. It was gasoline. Li- oh, gasoline? Mm-hmm. Okay. The first thing the detectives wanted to do was determine who the second girl was that had been murdered. Based on items in the house, they were able to determine that the girl's name was Chelsea Smith. She was a 13-year-old girl who was on the same softball team as Jessica Watts. The detectives asked Chelsea Smith's mother to come down to the police station so they could let her know what had happened before she found out from someone else. We don't know the details of that conversation, but I can assume it was the most difficult one the mother ever had to hear. In an interview, she said that she doesn't remember quite what the detective said to her, but she remembers dropping to the ground. The detectives learned the full story from Chelsea's mother once she calmed down. Chelsea and Jessica had played a softball game as part of a tournament the day before, on July 29th. Through playing on the team, the two girls became close friends. Jessica's birthday was coming up, and Chelsea would not be able to be there, so she and Jessica did what kids always do. They begged their mothers for a sleepover. Chelsea's mother knew Diane Watts well. In fact, she'd known her since she was 10 or 11 years old. So she trusted her with her daughter and allowed her daughter to go to sleep over Jessica's house for the night. In an interview, Chelsea's mother said that Diane was a great mother and she felt safe because her and Jessica had spent a lot of time together. And after she knew what happened, she said that she felt that Diane would have done everything she could have done to protect both girls. And it's not Diane she blames. I mean, that is really hard. You know, you, you know, you have, you know, you're giving another person, you know, the responsibility to care for your kid. And even though it has nothing to do with her, it's not her fault. I'm just saying that must be hard because you think your kid's safe and it's just yeah. an innocent sleepover. Um, and I think that's like every parent's fears. If I let them leave the, 
the, the you know the safety and comfort of my home. I can't protect them if something happens. Right. Like, could you imagine that? Oh no. my god. And I go back and I think of like, you know, why did my parents like not like so many sleepovers or whatever? And now you kind of understand because it is kind of terrifying to just say, okay, here you go. Yeah, it's true. I mean, you're pretty much giving, like, letting them just go on their own. It's it's. I think it's scary. Yeah. <laughs> I'm probably going to be the worst. I'm probably like, hey, I'm going to put them on a leash or like strap them to me and I'm not going to let them leave ever. Oh my God, John. I'm just kidding. Well, not <laughs> no, the leash No, we just part, have but... sleepovers at our house. We have to become the sleepover house. I know. Are you sure about that though? I'm sure about that. I don't. All right. I'll be the sleepover house. That'd right. be fun. I'll just hide. Okay. <laughs> no, you'll be playing with the kids more than anyone. Probably. Just no Legos. They hurt if you step on them. Okay. So before she left, Chelsea said goodbye to her mother and she said, don't worry, mom, everything will be all right. And unfortunately, what was supposed to be a fun night for the two girls turned into every parent's worst nightmare. By 10 a.m. that morning, the triple homicide was all over the news. People were angered by the murders. The town outcry was who would have done this to a mother and two young girls? What kind of monster was in their midst? The police force knew that they had to work fast to solve this crime. But in a small town, rumors were flying, and the McMinnville Police Department and the Warren County Sheriff's Department really did a wonderful job trekking through rumors and what is small town gossip and what is a real good lead to follow up. And they followed up on every single aspect. The detectives that were working this case for seven days straight worked 24 hours. The only thing they did was they went home to shower, get something to eat, and then they just kept working. Yeah, I mean, at this point, I don't think we could even say anything bad about them. They, they're they really on top of their, their game right now. Yes, and they were very, they did a great job with the crime scene and kind of cutting it off and not allowing anyone into the scene. The only person that entered the house was the firefighter because he was trying to save the the children and Diane. Yeah. So the first thing they needed to know was what had happened. They had their theory that the victims had been beaten, but it would take an official autopsy to determine that. Now there was a rush on all tests being done at the scene, which is how they were able to quickly determine that the blood found on the bat and torque wrench belonged to all three victims. It was on the same day they received the results from the autopsy. But before I get into what the um, medical examiner said, let's talk about the medical examiner's office for a little bit. Okay, so are you ready for this wild ride tangent? I am ready. (laughs) So in 1998, the doctor that had been the medical examiner, Dr. Bruce Levy, replaced a Dr. Charles Harlan, who had had his medical license revoked for misconduct. Oh, really? Yes. Complaints against Harlan included incomplete examinations, botched cases, what was described as a macabre personal behavior, and um, that included storing body parts in his laundry room. Excuse me? Yeah, like I guess he took some body parts. Get out of here. No. You know, but that's so bad because, I mean, in some cases, or maybe I could probably sit here and say every case, the ME report is so crucial because it's a lead that could be followed up. Yes. So if it's not done uh, correctly, that's... Or completely. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's really bad. Yes. So now, 
Uh, Levy was credited with bringing professionalism back to the medical examiner's office. And reportedly, he did a wonderful job for many, many years. He did have some criticisms. One was he allowed a television show to videotape an autopsy without a family's permission. That's That's not not good. good. Nope. Um, However, on March 16th, 2010, so obviously 11 years after this case, Levy was busted in a hotel room in Madison County, Mississippi, where he was scheduled to testify in court the following day on a case. In his room, marijuana was found in a sealed evidence bag. Okay. So he he admitted to taking marijuana from the evidence locker of the medical examiner's office. So basically it was found on the body of a corpse. He stores it until the police can come pick it up, but he took the pot. I mean, I don't know. I don't know about you, but I find that very, very weird. Yeah. I mean, like, listen, that pot, even if you were into that, that pot's like on a dead person. Yeah, just it's, go buy somebody. Just, dude, just go get it. Like, why? Yes. But that's weird. So they have a lot going on with their Emmy's office in Tennessee. Yeah, what's going on? Um, the result from uh, Levy's case was he pled guilty to misconduct and he had to attend an eight-month rehab and he was on probation for three years. And then the offenses were ripe, were wiped of his record. So, I mean, he did have a great career. He just, I mean, that's bad. I mean, okay, is, is it worse to have a guy that doesn't do his job at all, pretty much, and, and was into weird things, or a guy that does his job but steals weed? <laughs> I would say Harlan's worse because I'd rather him steal weed than body parts and put that's, it in his laundry room. That's right. I, but I'm just saying, like, both are bad because you probably shouldn't be doing any of these things as a medical examiner. Yeah, just do your job. Yeah, just just stay in your lane, do your job, and whatever you want to do outside of work, hey, man. That's fine. It's up to you. Yeah. Oh, sweet God. So I saw that, and I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be a crazy deviation from the case, but <laughs> it's a pretty interesting one. It is. That's awesome. Um. Okay, so now here's the autopsy report. Chelsea Smith had five blunt force trauma wounds to her head and one to her groin area. She died as a result of the blows to her head and smoke inhalation. So she had been alive when the fire started. Now, this meant two things. It meant that she might have been unconscious and then the fire was started and she died of smoke inhalation while she was unconscious Or it could mean she died a slow and painful death as she was injured and was breathing in smoke. We don't know. And the medical examiner stated during his testimony during trial, he could not determine whether or not they were unconscious when the fire was started. I mean, that's a a pretty big mystery there because it would kind of give you a really good idea of like what took place first. Well, no, you know what took place. They were beaten first. But we just don't know, did they die a painful death? Like, were they awake for the fire being started or were they unconscious? Well, the smoke inhalation thing happens really quickly. Like, you know, it takes you over very fast. I guess that's what I'm... What I'm saying is it didn't provide closure to the families of knowing, like, okay, she was unconscious at least and didn't have to be terrified by this fire coming at her you know what i mean yeah i know i see what you're saying it's important for the families to know what happened of course and it unfortunately that wasn't able to be determined so you're kind of left with this unknown later during the trial dr levy would testify that the injuries obtained by chelsea smith were the result of full swing blows from a torque wrench 
meaning somebody wound back and with all of their power hit her in the head five times and once in her groin. I, I mean, you know what? You know what I was thinking too with, with the torque wrench? Uh, we said there was two murder weapons and one only had, did one only have blood from the mother and then the other two had from the children? Correct. Okay, so that, that, that definitely has been established here, right? Yes. Okay. If it's two people, that would actually make a lot of sense because if this is personal, which it kind of seems like it is personal, if this is somebody that she knew, maybe this person wouldn't mind taking out the mother, but maybe that person couldn't take out the kids and that other person with the other weapon did that because he had no feeling or connection like the other person that might have been there. I think we should, you're bringing up a good point about trying to determine who killed Diane versus who killed the girls. Yeah. But once you get all the information, then I think you'll be able to make your assessment. Okay. Yeah, because okay. I'm questioning flagging this. Okay, question flag. This is yeah. a question flag. Yeah. It's interesting, though. About who did it. About who did it, and if there's more than one person. So now um, let's get into what happened to Jessica and Diane. Jessica Watts suffered two blows to her head from a torque wrench. However, her cause of death was just smoke inhalation, meaning that she had only been either knocked unconscious or knocked to the ground. Like, no matter what, Chelsea Smith was going to die from her injuries before the fire. Jessica Watts might have survived. Okay. If the fire hadn't been started because she died of smoke inhalation. So most likely Jessica Watts was unconscious because she couldn't get herself up. And that's what's going to be important because you have to think Chelsea Smith only just came to the house as a sleepover, but she was beaten savagely in comparison to the two blows from Jessica Watts. Remember, Chelsea Smith was hit six times. Right. Jessica was only hit twice and not wouldn't have died from her injuries of the torque wrench. It's almost as if they're trying to minimize the damage on the Jessica. damage on Jessica. Yeah, yes. So keep that in mind. Okay. When it came to Diane Watts, there were two severe injuries to her head that were caused by the baseball bat. In court, a forensic scientist would testify that the blood from Diane Watts was found on the baseball bat, and the other two victims' blood was found on the torque wrench. So now they knew what happened to the victims, and they heard from neighbors that night that they had seen Diane and the girls get home around 10.30 p.m., and the earliest the fire was seen was at 6 a.m., and based on the testimony of the neighbors, only Diane's car had been seen in the driveway. So this attack um, had to have taken place between that time. So like I said earlier, the detectives working the case really spent a lot of time chasing down rumors and tips that came in. However, early on, the detectives felt their intuition tell them two things about these murders. First, this was personal, like you said. It wasn't a robbery, and it would have been a random house to hit in kind of the middle of other houses. Like, where Myers Lane is located is on the outskirts of town. So it's kind of pretty far away from the center of town and where most of the homes are. But there are a lot of homes on Myers Lane, so enough for people to have seen the fire. So it would be just like a random house to get. So they don't think this was like a random robbery. Nothing was missing. This Nothing on the in the scene was like a miss. 
So they thought someone came in specifically to commit these murders, and it was personal. Yeah, it seems like it's target. Like they're obviously targeting her and whoever's in the house. Right. And the second thought they had was that there was more than one attacker, like you said. Um, there's no way this was just one person, especially because of the two separate weapons. But then, you know, in a way, it could just be one person where one person came in, killed Diane with a baseball bat, and then saw that the two girls were there and then picked up a different weapon. So it could be. It be, could be. Based on the blood evidence, but usually when you see more than one weapon, it's more than one person. Yeah. I mean, I know that, you know, there's times where people will carry more than uh, one murder weapon. Right. But I, I don't know. I feel like those two... You wouldn't be holding both of those, like a baseball bat and a torque wrench at the same time. It's Yeah. It, it alludes to having two people there. Right. Like, we've seen one attacker use several weapons, but that's because they had multiple guns on them. Yeah. And that's different than this. Yeah, because, I mean, you would have to hold one with each hand. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, most importantly, the detectives wanted to speak to the families of the victims. Because they believed that this was personal... They wanted to hear from the family. What had been going on in Diane and Jessica's lives that could have caused someone to do this? Well, first they learned that there was another resident of the house on Myers Lane. Doug Myers, Diane's boyfriend. And no, it is not a coincidence that his last name is the same name as the street. Because the Myers family, they were a bit of an institution in the town of McMinnville. They had lived there for generations and generations. And Clementine Myers, the mother of Doug, was now the current matriarch of the family. And this was kind of a family that had a lot of money. So it's like that old money, like very like historical kind of like family kind of. But more of like a. God forgive me. This is just me being honest. It's like a Appalachian Mountain version of that. Oh. Okay. So it's not like regal. Right. I was thinking. It's not old re- yeah. Southern Baptist plantation money. It's like um, Clementine Myers has most of the money that she has because of all the ex-husbands that she has. And her family has been there for generations. And it's not like the Myers family has been there, but Clementine's family has been there for a long time. Gotcha. Because she's her last name is Myers just because this is the man that she's most recently married to. Okay. But they have a lot of money and the street is named after them. Interesting. Yes, because this her last husband was the one she was married to for the longest amount of time. And she has um, her two sons. So... Diane's life story, it's so funny that I mentioned the Appalachian Mountains because here I have written, Diane's life story reads like an Appalachian Mountains Greek tragedy. Okay. (laughs) It's really sad. Um, Years before her murder, her husband Jimmy, the father of Jessica, died in a car accident. That's really sad. Yes. And according to her sister, Diane took the death of her husband very hard as anyone really would she found herself a single mother who had to work hard and was very lonely but then diane found love in an unusual place the boy next door 
Growing up, Diane and her sister lived next door to the Myers family. They had been friends with Jug and his brother, Gary. And those are the sons of Clementine Myers. Okay. So although there had been nothing romantic growing up, Doug kind of always had a crush on Diane. And the families were really close friends. And the four children always remained in touch. In fact, Diane's sister, Vicky, and her husband spent a lot of time with Gary Myers and his wife. So after Jimmy died, Doug began coming around Diane's house. He said he had always had feelings for her and thought the two of them would be a good match. They could take care of each other. And Doug had a daughter from a previous marriage who he had split custody of. And he thought, you know, Diane would be a good mother to her and they would have a nice blended family together. Oh, I, mean, I mean, that's nice. I mean, that's yeah. a, um, a, a great outlook. It's what you would hope for, yeah. you know. So after a while, Doug moved into the home um, that Diane had with her daughter on the streets that were named after his ancestors. So by all accounts, Doug Myers was a great guy. He was affable, and he made an honest living as a logger, just as his brother, his father, and his grandfather had done before him. It's like, cue the Bruce Springsteen song (laughs) right there. (laughs) Yeah, Um, right. But make no mistake, the Myers family was wealthy. They just chose to spend their money how they chose to spend it, and not necessarily in the conventional way of, like, flashy cars and jewelry. They owned a lot of property in town. And because of that, they kind of wielded a lot of power. Just like in most small towns. (laughs) Correct. When Diane's family was questioned about what had been going on in Diane's life, and who could have wanted to have hurt her, um, they made it very clear that Doug really should have been home because if he had been, nothing, none of this would have happened because Doug would have been there to take care of them and protect them. And that's really how they saw Doug with Diane. They said they didn't think Doug would ever hurt her. And when asked if they thought Doug could be involved in this, they said that Doug loved Diane and loved Jessica like she was his own daughter. So the family really is behind Doug Myers. Okay. And think of it, they've known him his whole life. Yeah, this isn't like a complete stranger or anything. Right. When police interviewed Doug, he was devastated by the news that his girlfriend, her daughter, and her daughter's friend had been savagely murdered in their home while he was not there. He said that night he had been in Winchester, and that's a town that's about an hour away from McMinnville. Now, that wasn't too much of an alibi, but he did say that his brother Gary had called him around 6.30 a.m., obviously on a landline, so that was proof that he would have actually been in Winchester. Now, based on the arson investigation, it was determined that the fire was set between 4.30 and 5 a.m., so technically, he could have started the fire and then driven to Winchester to be there in time to receive a phone call at 6.30 a.m. In fact, he would actually have extra time. And to ensure that their theory was correct, that Doug would have had time to make it to Winchester after starting the fire, the detectives made the drive between Diane's house and where Doug had stayed, and it took them 55 minutes. So technically, it could have been Doug. Yeah, I mean, that alibi is a little shaky. Um, you know what I would w- uh, want to do as well if I was an investigator? 
You said he was a logger, right? Yeah. Okay. I would want to check every local gas station on the way from Winchester to where the murder uh, was done. And just to see if he pulled up to get gas, like in a little portable can or anything, because we know that that was the accelerant used. Right. If we can kind of pin that and see if he was at one of those gas stations, that would be such a key indicator. But also, if he's not picked up there, that doesn't mean that it rules him out. Because as a logger, you're going to have gasoline on site where you're cutting down these trees and doing work. Right. Um, within the encampment of your logging area, you're going to have So fuel. it's kind of a double-edged sword. So it is a double-edged sword, but if he does have a canister on him, at a gas station, though, then you definitely know that that's where he got it from, and that could be what he used it for. Right. But just, you know, like you said, double-edged sword. But it would be accessible and easy to get at a logging camp. Right. <laughs> so. So, like, he could have even just got it from work and maybe not even stopped. Right, exactly. So you could say, oh, well, we don't see him anywhere at any of the video cameras at the gas stations. Okay, well, maybe he got it from work. Yeah. So that's just a, just something I want to point out there. No, that's really good because I wouldn't think of that. Yeah. That's what he had access to. Well, the police felt in that moment that Doug's reactions were really genuine. So, yes, there was a possibility that he could have done this, but they just put him on the back burner because they're like, you could have done it, but we feel like you really cared about Diane and Jessica and her family tends to agree. So they had Doug in the back of their minds. Which is good because you don't want it to be super hyper-focused on one person and just go in one direction only. You know what I mean? Yeah. The ability to just put him on the back burner and look at everybody else that could be a suspect is such a better way of going about it. Yeah, I feel like this force did a phenomenal job because not only did they have to wade their way through all of these rumors, and this was a pretty heavy major crime that took place and they didn't rush to solve it they really took their time in knowing exactly what took place and i have to give them kudos for that absolutely especially because they were out of practice in doing something like this yeah it's not every day that this happens in a small town like this right the next weeks of the investigation were spent chasing down leads called into the police station and after talking to many people in town and the family of the victims, the detectives felt that there was something going on. People knew more than they were saying, and there was something larger to uncover here. And because of that, they wanted to take their time and not just jump to conclusions. They felt as if the community as a whole knew something and they were protecting someone. Well, more than someone, a group of people. And as the detectives worked, the families of the victims wanted the people in the town to remember what had happened to their loved ones. And I also took it as the victims' families put this, they had this campaign about ribbons. So there was the three people that had died, Diane and Jessica and Chelsea, and they took their favorite colors and had these three ribbons of those three colors around every tree and stop sign in the county and the police force would wear all of the ribbons as well. And it was kind of, I felt, a message to the town of how are you protecting the people that did this to these girls and that single mother? Yeah, because obviously if other people in the town know, well, then that also means that the victims' uh, families 
know as well, just like they do. Right. Word spreads. So they're probably like, you know, this is kind of wrong. You guys are protecting, uh, you know, who we all think did it. Right. And you're not doing anything about it. <laughs> you know what I felt it was like, like season one of True Detective. Okay. Where the town knows something and the detectives are just... Imagine the frustration that you must have. You're working 24 hours. You're trying to solve this horrific crime of this woman and these two girls who were beaten to death and then set on fire. And you're trying to solve this crime. And the people you're talking to know what happened. And they're not talking. Oh, I would I would be ready to lose my, you know, lose my mind. And that's how they felt. Yeah. Because what are what are you really supposed to do? It's not like you could be like everyone. Tell me right now what you know. Like you can't force somebody to tell you unless you know right. they're under arrest or something. You know, like but how can how can you do that? The whole yeah. town is in on this. It feels like yeah, well, in on it loosely, like loosely knowing a little bit more, but not wanting to get involved in the law. And right. That's sometimes the mindset of uh, more rural towns. Yeah, it's like. We got to protect our own yes. kind of uh, mentality. Exactly. Or they want to protect themselves from something bigger and illicit that's taking place because that's what seems like it's happening. Yeah. That maybe Diane knew something she didn't, she shouldn't have known. Oh, okay. So during this time in the investigation, the evidence led the detectives to a man named Stephen Alley. Allie had a bit of a rap sheet and a bad reputation in town. It was also known that there had been a conflict between Doug Myers and Stephen Alley over something. The stories varied, but it was kind of like there was bad blood over, over something stupid, like some just small dispute. They tried very hard to pin these crimes on Stephen Alley, but in the end, his alibi stuck and he just wasn't angry enough at Doug Myers to have committed the crime. Yeah, like if it's like over a small dispute, yes. I, it, it doesn't equate to having three people right. killed. And it seems like kind of like a barroom disagreement. It wasn't like, I'm going to murder your family. Yeah. But detectives learned something valuable from this tangent they went on with Stephen Alley. Maybe Doug Myers isn't the perfect man he's made out to be. So by this time, it was almost two weeks into the investigation, and the detectives wanted to talk to Diane's family again. But this time, they really wanted to talk to them about Diane's relationship with her boyfriend, Doug. And they wanted to know what the hell was going on. Like, tell us really what's happening, because we're trying to solve this crime. And we don't want to just hear the good stuff. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, right? The faster that we could solve this crime, the faster everything can go back to normal and we could serve justice. Right. Right now, the whole town is in like an uproar and everyone's on edge. We could make this all go away, you know? Right. By just getting the guy or or people that are involved in this. And solve this crime. If I was part of this town, I'd be like, hell yeah. If I know something, I'm going to tell you everything I know. But so we not can if you were this. raised to kind of maybe fear something I or know. someone. Yeah, you're right. I know. I can't really put myself... In that, in, that, in their yeah, shoes. true. But this time, when the detectives went to talk to Diane's family, they were a little more forthcoming. Her sister Vicky said that there was actually something that had happened to Diane that she hadn't been happy about, but she didn't think too much about. But maybe it would be helpful. 
The night before the murder, so on July 28th, Vicky had been over her sister's house when the phone rang. She had been sitting right next to her when she picked up the phone, so she was able to hear the entire conversation. Clementine Myers, the mother of her boyfriend, had been on the phone. She was very upset with Diane and not happy about something she had been doing or saying. At one point in the conversation, uh, Vicky had overheard Clementine saying that she could have anyone eliminated for $5,000. So now she's just carrying out a murder for hire business now? But, so Vicky said that she told her sister to hang up the phone and basically pay no attention to the nonsense that Clementine is talking. Um, because that woman kind of feels like she runs this town and like, don't give her the time of day, basically, is what she said to her. But as the investigation got had continued and there was no suspects, Vicky kind of rethought this phone conversation. And that's why she was bringing it up to detectives now, because it's two weeks into the investigation. Yeah, it's definitely something to look into if you're uh, you know, a police investigator. Right. She thought it was just like an old woman kind of running her mouth. But now she's like, you know what, maybe I should tell the police about that conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. Vicky had been devastated by the murders. Her best friend, her sister, and her niece had been taken from her, and another innocent girl had died. She was also still traumatized by having to identify her body that day, and she was upset. She told police that she thought Clementine was evil. She said she had always gotten on with Doug and Gary, Clementine's sons, but she thought that Clementine herself was evil. She thought she ran the town, and she practically did. Her family had been in McMinnville for over a century, and her influence reached far and wide, with the family and outside of the family. And like I said before, she did not like the typical things a wealthy person did. Um, because what she did with her wealth was garner a certain amount of power within the town, and that's what she seemed to like, power and control over people. Yeah, it's interesting. It's uh, I always feel like it's the landowners and the families that have been there for like hundreds of years that have that way about them. I know the town I grew up in, that's how it was too. Right. Some of the farmers that own hundreds and hundreds of acres of land um, and have been there forever, they have like a way about them. But also like a respect and I don't want to say fear, but a, a definitely like a respect towards them. Right, the name means something. Yeah, yeah. So Clementine was an elderly woman who had had many marriages, like I said before, and from the ending of those marriages, she had become very wealthy. She also inherited many properties and money over the years. She was most definitely a Tennessee Mountain woman. Now, this case is unique because all of the players knew each other so well. So Vicki Fleming, Diane's sister, had some insights on Clementine because when she, remember, um, Vicky and Diane's family lived next door to the Myers family. So when they lived next to each other, they lived on the outskirts of town by the mountains. And Clementine used to hire Vicky to drive her around when she would go out drinking. Oh, my God. <laughs> like a personal chauffeur. Okay. Now, listen, the problem with this was Vicky was 13 years old when this happened. Oh, my God. <laughs> but and, and I'm as I'm like reading this, I'm like, OK, it was the 1970s and they're in a very rural part of the state. But at the same time, you're a 13, your 13 year old neighbor is your DD. 
you know what though <laughs> let's give credit where credit's due here at least at least they're practicing safe driving and not driving drunk you know uh yes i guess we could go that route <laughs> so vicky told the detectives that one night while she was kind of working for clementine that clementine had been very drunk and she wanted to pick up a six-pack but remember back then mcminnville was a dry town so she would have to drive to the next town and stop at a bar. So she said when Clementine got back into the car, she had a six-pack in one hand and a knife in the other, and there was blood all over the knife and her shirt. She got in the car and just said, let's go. So Vicky just started driving. And as they were driving, the woman said, still very drunk, um, that she had slashed another woman in the stomach over a minor dispute at the bar. While she was waiting for the six pack. Jeez. Okay. So this is like, yeah. Okay. So we're, we're kind of seeing her. I don't want to say. Yeah, actually I can. It's, it's like an unravel. Like she's unraveling a little bit. Like she's a little, it's like a loose cannon. Yes. It's kind of scary. She has a short temper and a lot of power because she has a lot of money. So that Very is scary. interesting. Now this of course was like 25 years before the crime that we're talking about in this case was committed, right. but it shows the mindset of Clementine Myers. Right, but it also could show how you go from doing that and having that kind of behavior, and then over time you evolve to more sophisticated ways of doing things, which I think is where we're headed. Yeah. So now detectives thought this was all very interesting. They thought that Clementine might know more about what happened to her son's girlfriend, her daughter, and her daughter's friend. But they didn't think she was an actual suspect because physically at her age, it would have been very difficult for her to commit those murders. But she might know who did it because at the very least, she was the unofficial town mayor and nothing happened in McMinnville without Clementine Myers knowing about it. However, when they went there, they couldn't get anything out of Clementine. She said she felt horrible about what had happened that she loved Diane and she loved her for her son. And she felt the same about Jessica. She didn't know what could have happened. And that's all she gave detectives. It's a very generic, like cookie cutter story. I felt, oh, that's terrible. I feel bad. My heart goes out. Anyway, take care. (laughs) Exactly. That's what it was, basically. I'm not talking to you about any of this. So now on August 20th, which is about three weeks into the investigation, the detectives really had an interest in Doug Myers. They had learned from his dispute with Stephen Alley that he might not be on the up and up, and there had to have been a reason why Clementine Myers, Doug's mother, let loose that idle threat to Diane the day before she was murdered. So now the detectives wanted to re-interview some people in town, but... Now they wanted to do so with the intent of focusing completely on Doug. The detectives learned something strange. Doug, as of recently, had a new best friend. People said his new friend was a troublemaker and had been getting Doug involved in some bad things. And they thought it was very odd that Doug was friends with him at all. Because this guy, his new best friend, whose name was Johnny Lewis... Um, He went by the nickname John Boy. He was actually dating and living with Doug's ex-wife. Get out of here. No. So you have a new friend. 
that's dating your ex-wife. Yeah. And you spent all this time together. Correct. Very strange. And sometimes at the apartment that your ex-wife shares with this guy. Yeah, I don't. I That's that's not cool. That's very weird. That's not cool. And I think the whole John Boy thing is very strange. I don't like the nicknames. They call him John Boy. I don't like that. Yeah. That's it's how weird. he's referred to. It makes me think the dude's bad news when I hear John Boy. Is that weird? No, I completely agree with you. I, I feel like he's like an old Western character. <laughs> like a, yeah, has like a six shooter and like <laughs> he's very not he's bad news bears. Yeah. So police wanting to learn more about the role of John Boy went to Diane's family and asked them some questions about the man. Diane's nephew said that one day he had went over his aunt's house and John Lewis had been on the couch and he didn't know the man and the man didn't say hello to him. So when her nephew went into the kitchen where Diane was cooking dinner for everyone, he asked basically, who's that unfriendly guy on the couch? And Diane said to him, oh, that's just John boy. He's all right. The teenage boy said that he didn't like Lewis right away. That there was clearly something off about him, and he got a really bad vibe from the man. And honestly, he was right to have a bad vibe about him because Lewis did have an extensive criminal record, and he was not known as a good man. However, he was a smooth talker. And I mean, he must have been right to befriend the ex-husband of your current girlfriend. And even beyond that, Everyone the police talked to about the relationship between Doug Myers and John Boy Lewis said that Lewis had a bit of a control over Doug that no one really understood. It's like that. uh, uh, What's that thing? It's like coercion control or like Uh, coercive control. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) But that's what that's what it seems like. Like this guy can get, you know, can do whatever he wants, which scares me. It's very odd. Like, where are we going to draw the line here? Because if he's able to control him like that, that's not good news. No, it is not. And you can imagine that Diane would have a problem with that. Not only are you now hanging out with your ex-wife again, but you're hanging out with your ex-wife's new boyfriend who has this bizarre control over you. I wouldn't like that. I would not either. So people also said that Lewis had been getting Doug in trouble. And it was odd because Doug usually kept himself clean. But at the end of May, so this is going to be like two months before the murders took place, Lewis had gotten Doug involved in a scam where he was stealing tractors and ride-on lawnmowers and then reselling them. Okay, so just another scheme to make money. Yes, and this was actually common knowledge within the community. And it was also common knowledge that Diane had not been happy with Doug's new activities. Who would be? So before Lewis got into the picture, the two of them had a good thing going. They were really trying hard to enjoy their second chance at love. And now Doug was making the wrong choices. And, you know, you can imagine at this point, the detectives must have been so happy because they were finally getting information from people. Yeah. You know, it only takes one person to kind of open up that I feel like can set the dominoes to fall, right? Right. And one person opens up, okay, if they could do it, so could I. And you feel safer to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think people were more open to, like, 
talk crap about John Lewis, if that makes sense. I feel like they were a little bit more nervous to talk about Clementine Myers. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, of course, the detectives wanted to speak to John Boy Lewis. And when they spoke to him, he said that he didn't know anything about what happened. But he did say that he had been at the house the morning of the murders. Okay, for what reason? Well, he said he never said anything because it wasn't a big deal and he didn't want to get in trouble. He wanted to hang out with Doug and he thought he might be home. Like he thought maybe he had come home from Winchester early. So he drove to the home in the early morning hours. Um, He got there between 4.30 and 5 a.m., he said. He said he got to the house. He saw that Doug's truck wasn't there and the house was not on fire at that point. And he left. So he said he didn't know anything else that was happening. But it was clear in the eyes of the detectives that John Lewis was not upset or empathetic at all about the murders that had taken place. Like, he was so callous. Also, I think it's weird that you would not share that. I'm sorry, buddy, but that's actually a really important thing that you have neglected to tell police that you were there. Well, he thought because he he is a known criminal that he would get in trouble and that they would try to pin it on him. So that's why he said he didn't say anything. But you're right. His information is actually really important because they if he was there between 430 and 5 a.m., it actually and there was no fire. It show would show that the fire was set after that and it would give a more. Um, tight timeline of when the fire was started yep so it really would have been useful information exactly 100 percent. and if anything now i'm going to be more suspicious of him now because he didn't he wasn't forthcoming correct 100 percent. detectives continued to re-interview people including people in diane's extended family and they finally found out why diane might have been in trouble Apparently, she had been telling people that she was going to call the sheriff's department about what John Lewis had been doing, stealing all of those tractors and mowers. Her theory was, if I call the police on John, then he'll go to prison and Doug won't be able to hang out with him any longer. And then maybe he won't be influenced by him and he'll stop committing crimes and he'll stop hanging around his ex-wife. Yeah. I mean... I get the theory, but you have to know that John Lewis wouldn't take that lying down. I mean, he would have taken Doug down with him if he was going to get in trouble for the tractors and the the ride-on mowers. Oh, yeah, 100%. I don't think Doug would have gotten out of that scot-free. No. Another piece of intel they received was that the day following the murders, Shirley Humphrey... Now, Shirley Humphrey is the ex-wife of Doug... And the current girlfriend of John Lewis. She was not caught, but she was seen burning something out behind her shop and home. Because she lived above the store she owned. Well, what kind of store was it? Do you know? So she owns Selena's Market, which is a country store in Blues Hill, which is, I would say, about 20 miles away from where Diane lived. Okay. So she was seen burning something behind her store. Okay. This is interesting. Um, I'm, I'm trying to piece something together here now because we talk about, like, you know, 
people being afraid to step forward within the town because something else could happen. We have this loose cannon, John Boy, the ex-wife to Doug now. Is it possible that maybe the two of them were maybe involved in this? Like the ex-wife and John yes, tried and, to do this. Yeah, and like pretty much this was their way of saying to Doug, like, you do what we tell you to do. And if you don't, this happens. Right. Like, we're going to get rid of them because you're not listening Correct. to us. Okay. And then he, like, think about it. Doug wouldn't go to his mother for support because if he did, something could happen. That, right. That maybe he didn't want to happen. It's an interesting theory. Because, I mean, I wonder what she's burning back there. Like, what I, now what is the ex-wife's involvement? Right. Well, now, just before I get into a little bit more about what she was burning back there, the just more background was she of course owned that selena's market and the residents of the town no not me people don't think i'm being judgmental but the people of the town described that country store as being very run down like you know like the place you pass and you're like how is that place still in business yeah (laughs) like that's the store that she had this like old-timey run-down country store and her and John live above the store. She used to live above the store with Doug and their daughter. That's around the same age as Jessica Watts, Diane's daughter. And then, of course, they got their divorce. And now John lives there. And Doug and Shirley have 50-50 custody. So half the time she lived with Doug and Diane. And the other half of the time she lived with her and John. The- Oh my god, a light bulb just went off in my mind. Okay. That's motive. What if the ex-wife has something against the fact that Doug is with the other that other woman? And that would explain the the way that she was murdered, maybe. Like she like like I don't know, maybe I'm putting too much thought but into this. But then why was the aggression taken out on the the friend Chelsea Smith, like, wouldn't more aggression been taken out on Jessica and Diane? Maybe, maybe it was. Maybe it was because it was misidentification. Oh, so you're thinking that it's somebody who was hired? Yeah, or it was just a casualty of maybe she fought back, or maybe, you know, okay, maybe something. I see what you're saying, you know, like an unforeseen type of situation, right. but. What if that is the reason? That is motive. Maybe the ex-wife doesn't like that Doug, even though she's with somebody else, doesn't like that Doug is with this woman. Well, sometimes that's how it works, and right? Th- yeah, <laughs> totally, totally. Um, And I'm thinking, like, maybe that's why she was badly burned and maybe that she was lit on fire, Um, you know, it, almost as an insult to her being, a, like, a woman, like, with, you know, like, her beauty or, like, her... her I, I see what you're saying. You yeah. know, like, um, I, mean, I could be thinking too much into this, but... I mean, that could be motive. Very interesting. Yeah. Now, because police had a strong hunch that Shirley burning that fire in the backyard was directly involved in the case, they obtained a search warrant to search the property before anyone had any clue they were coming. So so they didn't want the couple to get rid of any evidence. So they just kind of abruptly came with the search. And in the burn pit at the house, the remnants of clothes were left behind. It appeared that 
men's clothes were burned in the burn pit. And these clothes most likely belonged to John, but they couldn't, it couldn't be proven that these clothes belonged to John. Like they had been too far gone, but they were clearly the clothes of clothes and shoes of a man. And the warrant had only been for the fire pit outside. So they weren't able to look inside the store or the apartment. So it was kind of like they, they obtained this search warrant. They thought they were going to find all these things and they didn't find anything They They left with no smoking gun. Right. It's an incomplete warrant because it's an incomplete search. Correct. So after the detectives knew that they would need more evidence to ever take a shot at John Lewis again, who they really thought was responsible for the murders, they thought he had caught wind that Diane was maybe going to try and call the police on him. So they wanted to try and collect evidence as best as they could while also working on the new investigations that were going on. I mean, remember, there's still more crimes happening. Like, this isn't the only case they're working. And in November of 2000, about 16 months after the murders had been committed, they grew tired of waiting. They felt the weak link in this whole thing with Shirley Humphrey. Her daughter had been friends with Jessica because their parents had been living together. And she didn't seem to have any bad blood with Diane. And she was also a mother. So they were hoping that Shirley Humphrey would have some empathy. So on November 12th, they asked her to go down to the station. The detective brought in with him over 100 photos of the crime scene into the interrogation room. They were trying to find out what she knew, and this would help them. In the beginning, she did what she always did when she talked to the police. She denied knowing anything about the case. However, when they started showing her pictures of the crime scene, she began to get upset. Then they showed her pictures of Jessica Watts and Chelsea Smith, and that's when she broke down. Her daughter was the same age as them. And there she was looking at pictures of the girls, their heads smashed in by a torque wrench and burns on the sides of their face and bodies. That could have been your daughter just as easily, they said. And when they said that, she started talking. They knew exactly what to do. Yep. Shirley had overheard a lot of the conversations that John and Doug had in the apartment that she now shared with John and used to have shared with Doug. It's so weird. So weird to say that. (laughs) She heard John say that Diane needed to be stopped because she was running her mouth. It just all needs to stop, they agreed. She heard John say that Diane needed to be stopped because she was running her mouth. It just all needed to stop, they agreed. She heard Doug say that he just wanted John to make sure that the kids weren't there. So in the conversations that John and Doug are having about taking Diane down, Doug is saying he wants the kids to be safe. Okay. She also told investigators that in the early morning hours of July 30th, John came home and asked her to burn his clothes and his shoes. She said that everything was in good condition, so she asked him why, and he said that it had been his job to go to the house and clean up afterwards so they didn't get caught. 
She admitted that she did not look too closely at the pile of clothes, and there could have been blood on them, but she wasn't sure. She said that later on, John had mentioned to her that the scene had been bad because the girl was not supposed to be there. And there was another girl there that wasn't supposed to be there either. And to wrap it all up, Shirley said that on the 29th, John had taken a lot of gasoline from the pump at the store she owned and had it in red canisters. Okay. And this, detectives knew, must have been used as the fire accelerant. John had most likely told them that he stopped by the house that morning just in case his tire tracks were in the gravel driveway or just in case a neighbor saw his car there. Okay, so, wow, this is very planned out. Yeah. Wow. So finally, they had the story. And with Shirley's testimony, they felt as if they had enough information to charge both Doug Myers and John Lewis with murder. On top of that, they were going to arrest Gary Myers as a co-conspirator because he had given a false alibi for his brother to police. Yeah. In the interrogation room, Doug insisted that he did not kill the two girls, that he never would have done that. But what I think is that Doug might have been the one to kill the two girls and like John Lewis killed Diane because he was mad that she was going to tell the police on him. And then I think once they realized the girls were there, I think Doug is the one who killed the girls. And that's why maybe, and this is totally just a theory for me, Jessica wouldn't have died from those hits because maybe he was just trying to incapacitate her and not kill her. I mean, it's a solid theory. But uh, then the fire was set. But then so, the fire, fire was set, yeah. Uh, you know, I think the biggest thing here is I think you would I think you would be naive to think that he wanted to help her. Well, well no, no. I think it's naive to think that he isn't involved um, at, at all. all. And I think that it's it's the best thing that we can say for certain is that if John if John Boy was able to convince him to do other things and kind of had this control and way over him, I think he was definitely there. And he definitely partook in what was going on that day. I don't know who he hit, who he killed, but it doesn't matter. He's there they on were the both property. There. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's down there on the property, definitely helping John do that. So, yeah, I yeah. think you know you brought it up, and it kind of resonated with me. I think the difference in injuries to the girls might have been because of who somebody that was fighting more. Yeah, I think so. Chelsea Smith is three years older than Jessica Watts, but they know each other because, you know, that's how like softball teams work. Like there's an age range. And I think because she was the older girl, she might have been fighting more. With or them. just had the opportunity to. Yeah. Maybe one was taken completely off guard and one saw it coming. So they were able to anticipate the uh, the striking. Right. You know, so I, you know, who there's knows? a lot of things that could have happened. Absolutely. To explain that. Yeah. Also, another thing that I was uh, thinking about, too, when uh, when we found out where he, John Boy received the gas from, you mentioned that the place was a little run down. So I don't know if anybody knows this, but when you keep gasoline in 55-gallon drums, um, over time, that gasoline actually becomes less and less effective. So 
gas actually has an expiration date. So when that gasoline was used to start the fire, um, it actually made that the that gasoline uh, maybe less flammable, or it didn't have that amount of energy and power to okay. continue to spread that fire. Like maybe that gas was sitting at the store for some yes, time. Yes, yes. Oh, that's an interesting. So point. It, it took away that um, that uh, flammability. I don't know if that's a word, but it be it was less flammable than if it was brand new gas. Interesting, John. Yeah, just Look want to point you. that out there. Bringing these nuggets of knowledge to us. Yeah. That's why people who have cars and garages and stuff, they put something called st- a stabilizer in the fuel so the car could sit for a, a longer uh, period of time so the gasoline doesn't go oh, bad. very interesting. Yeah. So on February 4th, the trial began. The trial was a very big deal in Warren County. When the defendants were brought to the courthouse, they had police surrounding them and snipers waiting on the roofs of nearby businesses because there had been a tremendous outcry from the community. Many were of the belief that, based on what the men did to Diane and those two innocent girls, there shouldn't have even been a trial. They should just be hanged on the court steps. So they were nervous that they were going to have an incident where someone tried to shoot the men while they were entering the courtroom. So that definitely must have been tense. That's a big a time to kill moment there, you know. During the trial, John Lewis showed no remorse. He laughed and smiled during inappropriate moments. Well, really, the whole trial was an inappropriate moment to to smile, but during particularly gruesome parts of the trial, he was laughing. And then at one point, he looked at the members of Diane's family and motioned to them. You know when you put your, like, thumb to your neck and then draw it across your neck, like, kind of like a cut-your-throat kind of thing. Yeah, like, I'm going to get you, like, you're next. Yeah, he did that to Diane's family during the trial. Yes, and the judge was furious with him about it and held him in contempt. Good. Yeah. During the trial, the prosecution was laying out that both men had been there that night. One had the bat and the other the wrench. From the testimony of Shirley Humphrey and later Gary Myers... The jury learned that first the men went into Diane's room and killed her. That had been when the girls woke up and they realized that they were home. Doug had been under the impression that Jessica wasn't supposed to be home, let alone have a friend over for a sleepover. The two men sat at the kitchen table and discussed what they were going to do. Isn't that so cold and callous? It is. They came to the agreement that they couldn't leave behind witnesses. And then the girls were attacked. This part of the trial was a lot for the audience of the trial and the jury to take. Those girls must have been terrified. And then they suffered horrific attacks. The pictures were horrific to look at. The men then poured gasoline all over Diane and her bed into the hallway and onto the bodies of the girls, and then into the kitchen. A match was lit, and then they left. But the fire did not set the whole house ablaze. It was contained only to Diane's room, for the most part. Something they hadn't counted on. Very quickly, the jury came back with the verdict once the trial was wrapped. Both men were found guilty. John Lewis was sentenced to 65 years in prison without parole. 
and Doug Myers was given three life sentences without parole. Next was Gary Myers. Now Gary was going to be charged with conspiracy to commit murder and an accessory after the fact. However, he flipped. And not just on his brother, but also on his mother. His mother, too? Yes. After John and Doug had been arrested, they quickly found out that Clementine had a lot to do with pushing the murder. So Clementine had been arrested as well. No way. So those were the four defendants. It was Gary and Doug Myers, John Lewis, and Clementine Myers. So this entire family and, and, and friends were literally just sitting at a table talking about how they would murder somebody. Yes. That is crazy. Like, it's just casual talk, like they're yep. talking about the news or sports or something. Yep. That is insane. The district attorney worked out a no-jail-time deal with Gary Myers if he testified against his brother and mother. And he did. He said that his mother was adamant that the murder of Diane go forward because she felt like the woman was threatening her family. Not only was she going to call the police on John Lewis which would get Doug in trouble in the long run. She also claimed that she was trying to get Gary in trouble too. So Gary was committing fraud um, with bankruptcies and food stamps. And the evidence of him doing so was in a lockbox, which was kept in Gary's room in the house. Days before the murder, the lockbox had gone missing. And Clementine, even though she had no evidence of this, was convinced that Diane had taken it. She had not. It had just been misplaced. This is crazy. Yes. So she said that something had to be done. And Gary was present when he saw his mother take out her coffee can that she keeps in the kitchen. And with gloves on, she was counting $100 bills. And she ended up giving $900 to John Lewis to start the fire. This is insane. You know what? Uh, you know what it actually truly reminds me of? Remember, um, it's like the first season of like Ozark. Yes. It's like that that family that like. Oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. It's yes. very much like that. The two brothers, the, no, da- so the daughter. Right. And the mother. And then the father comes back. I think it's the father that comes back from being in jail. Oh, yeah. no, the, or the father. I don't remember. But that family. Uh, yep, yep, if you guys yep. haven't seen that show, that is a fantastic show. Phenomenal. We yep. love it. So in the end. Clementine Myers was a powerful woman in town. Things always went her way, and she always protected her family, no matter what horrific thing they had done. In trying to search, this is just a side note here, in trying to search for the court cases against Doug and Gary Myers um, in case texts where, where um, you know, court case testimony is uploaded into um, the system. I did find another trial in McMinn County, Tennessee, where another member of the Myers family, I couldn't find out directly how they were related, but it's spelled the same way, was being accused of molesting um, his girlfriend's daughter. Really? So it seems like there's there's trouble in uh, the family tree there. Oh my God. So... Um, she would do anything to protect her family, no matter how horrific. And in the end, it was her own family that turned against her. Gary was given time served and probation, and Clementine was convicted of criminally negligent homicide and sentenced to the maximum of two years. 
She was originally tried for conspiracy and like higher charges, but the jury convicted her of a lesser crime and that was her sentence. So yeah, it was a a kind of family conspiracy and the town was nervous to talk about it because she did, they did have so much power. See, that all makes sense now. Like you're essentially going after the entire family because you know that they're involved and doing some bad shady things in the town. Exactly. Wow, this is crazy. I know. This is okay, a... always always so good. I'm always so impressed with the stories. I, I John, love it. thank I love you. Got to give it to you. He's being nice because it's the anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> well, I might have a little bit to, uh, to play in there. To but, do uh, with it. Yeah. Well, before we go, we want to thank our Patreon supporters who are new since the last episode we released. So we want to thank Sue Lewis, who upped her pledge, Kristen Minnis, Denisha Woods, Sherry Baru Kostuch, Ashley Chitwood, Katie Mary, Kathleen Boltovsky upped her pledge, Angela White, Mindy Box, Robin Pittman, Tracy Mayer upped her pledge, Bailey, Leah, Riley Weatherby, Kristen Felsman, Samantha Allen, Brandy Liu, Amanda Ellis, and Bree. Thank you guys so much for joining Patreon, and we hope you are enjoying those extra bonus episodes. And thank you for joining us for our fifth year anniversary episode. Thank you guys so much for sticking with us. And, you know, here's to another five years. Another five years. Right? I love it. (laughs) All right. So until next time, guys, don't park next to vans, and we'll see ya. Bye, guys. Bye.